Hey guys, as you know, the official beard company of the American History Podcast is Fable Beard Company. And right now, they've got some great new products for your beard with some amazing limited time seasonal scents. What says summertime more than lemonade and gum powder? You heard that right. Their newest scent is called The Refresher, and it has a scent profile that is, wait for it, gunpowder and lemonade. Seriously, I've tried it, and it's now my go-to beard oil product. I love this one. They have it in beard oil, butter, and of course, their fantastic all-in-one beard wash and conditioner. Now, of course, July is the month of independence, and we have the Patriot. This one features a blend of southern pecan pie, fresh berries, creamy vanilla, and light musk. As they say, this one smells like sunshine and freedom. Now, for the ladies in the audience, they've got products for you as well. The Enchantress is just the thing for you. It comes in hair oil and body lotion, just to name two. The scent profile features a blend of creamed peach, sparkling pear, lavender, and orange flowers. My wife loves this one, and I'm sure you will too. Now, head over to fablebeardcompany.co and use coupon code SEAN15 for 15% off the entire order. That's right, 15% off the entire order for listeners of this show. Remember, that's Sean, S-H-A-W-N, and the number 15. Now let's get back to the show. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 4, Japanese Militarism, Part 1. This is Tokyo Road. Are you listening? All you fine boys in your comfortable foxhole, listen Welcome, friends and listeners, to episode 4, Japanese Militarism. Now, in our last episode, we continued to discuss the evolution of Japan under the Meiji Restoration. We then discussed some of the racist attitudes, especially towards the Chinese, and we also noted the leaders of the new Meiji system were unaccountable to the people. Finally, I should remind you of our discussion of 20th century totalitarianism and its comparison to authoritarian conservatism. I don't want to spend too much time reviewing what we talked about last time, as I'm pretty excited to get into today's episode. If you have any questions, always feel free to drop me an email. The address is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. Having said that, let's hear the song of the week. This week we have Farewell Blues, a popular song in Japan in the late 1920s. We'll see you on the other side. Thank you. 
Now, one of the things that we need to understand about Japan in the Meiji period is the fact that you had an independent military, unlike what we see in, say, the United States, where the military answers to the civilian authority. In 1878, the general staff was an independent organization that was part of the army ministry. And this independence from civilian control was not changed with the Constitution of 1889. And true, that Constitution created a parliamentary system, but the emperor had a broad area of authority under his auspices. Executive authority and power was not under the control of the Diet, and that included the supreme command of the military, as well as the size of that body. To quote Articles 11 and 12, quote, The emperor has supreme command of the army, and navy. The emperor determines the organization and peace standing of the army and navy." End quote. Again, referring to Japanese historian um, who we've mentioned quite a few times already, Saburo Ayanaga, while there were those who believed the general staff and the military, according to the constitution, fell under the control of the civilian authorities, the reality was that this interpretation was not prevalent. Instead, the military, right from the start, occupied a unique and powerful position in the structure of the Japanese system. The independence of the general staff was accepted and unquestioned. Now, this will become, of course, um, important later this season. Now, Supreme Commander then, if not the civilian authority, was obviously the emperor. The emperor was supported in this regard by advisory groups, essentially the general staffs of both the army and navy, and it was these groups that planned and executed command functions. They did so entirely independent from the rest of the government. Now, there is, or there was, a bit of contradiction in all of this. When the cabinet system was created, and when the regulations for it were first made public, they stated the Army and Navy ministers were to report to the Prime Minister. However, and it's not clear when, but this changed, and the service ministers claimed they had the authority to report directly to the emperor himself. Now remember that the new constitution of 1889 was presented as a gift from the emperor to his people. This new constitution codified the idea that the emperor was one in a line of successors, a sacred blood lineage stretching back in history, and the government was thus subordinate to the monarchy based on this. This document set up three ideas about the emperor. First, he was sacred. Second, he was the head of the empire. And third, he was the supreme commander of the armed forces of the nation. The constitution was not the only thing Meiji gifted to his people. He also gave them a colonial empire and a status as a rising power. Within a decade of the new constitution, Japan was at war with China over Korea. Victory there enhanced the prestige of the emperor and, at the end of the day, of Japan as well. Now, there was an important point about the Meiji period that I should mention. During this time, the civilian leaders and the military leaders shared both personal and professional bonds, even if the military was independent of the civilian authorities. These were the men who'd fought to overthrow the shogunate, and they were, at that point, the youthful elite who were creating the modern Japan. These men all hailed from two fiefs, Satsuma and Chushu, or Chushu, and there was competition between the two camps, but at the end of the day, they were the in-crowd, so to speak. They were now the men who held the reins of power, and they stood united against all rivals. They were the young Turks, so I guess we could say, 
who matured into the oligarchs and leaders of the Meiji Restoration period. So that brings us to the imperial family. Meiji, for his part, impacted his grandson's life perhaps more than he knew. Hirohito idolized his grandfather and tried to emulate him whenever he could. But there were major differences between the two. First, Hirohito, unlike his grandfather, was often accompanied by military men. And while his grandfather did personally lead the army and navy, unlike his son Taisho, um, he diligently attended graduation ceremonies for the military and naval academies. Hirohito received a military education, and this was different from his grandfather. When he wore a uniform, um, which he almost always did prior to the end of World War II, he could at least say that he had earned it to some extent. The important lesson to learn here is that Hirohito was groomed to not question authority. Let's face it, military training is designed to get you not to question the system. I know usually in boot camp, um, at least in the Navy, they try to say they don't want robots, but they don't want you questioning authority. The young Hirohito, a man destined to wield supreme power in Japan, spent most of his time surrounded by military men. He also had a penchant for appointing bureaucratic types to important positions. At the same time, he had a distaste for saber-rattlers and reactionaries. So what do we make of all this? Well, on the one hand, he surrounded himself with military men, but tended to prefer bureaucratic types and disliked the more aggressive and reactionary people that one would have expected him to befriend. This was, without a doubt, a complicated man who wore many different masks and one wonders at what cost this came to himself and maybe to his family. Speaking of reactionaries, Hirohito, in a piece written in 1920, appears to be a young man concerned by extremist thoughts and ideas. Now this isn't surprising considering the events that were rocking Europe. The Russian Empire was embroiled in revolution and civil war between the Bolsheviks on the one hand and a loose alliance of whites and foreign powers on the other. Now, just for your information, the whites themselves were a loose coalition of social democrats, conservatives, and pro-monarchists who opposed or who were opposed to the communists on the left. Now, I'm not sure what Hirohito meant by this term, extreme thought, but I'd bet he was referring to Russia and the collapse of the monarchy there, but also what was going on in Germany and Austria. He was very likely speaking out against the idea of democracy, socialism, and communist revolution, which comes about in the aftermath of the Great War. Here is the emperor himself. Quote, the realm of ideas is greatly confused. Extremist thought is about to overwhelm the world, and an outcry is being made about the labor problem. Witnessing the tragic aftermath of the war, the peoples of the world long for peace and international conciliation amongst the nations, end quote. I should mention that this was written in response to the founding of the League of Nations, and the future emperor noted that he would obey the covenant of the League. His biographer, the historian Herbert Bix, notes in Hirohito on the Making of Modern Japan that this should not be taken as an endorsement for the League, but instead as youthful idealism and opportunism. The Japanese government, on the other hand, had no such idealistic notions, and ordered the Japanese delegation at the Versailles Conference to keep quiet on European affairs. Hirohito used phrases that would have resonated with Japan's conservative ruling elites and military leadership. These included confused realm of ideas, military preparedness, 
extremist thought, as well as luxury and extravagance. At a time when there was social unrest in Japan, due to what Bix says was a widening gap of wealth and power between the various classes, one can see the future leader is steeped in the conservative ideology being employed by the right to paper over the cracks in Japanese society at that time. Make no mistake, Japan was not unified on how to move forward into the 20th century. So what were these cracks? Well, first you had an ill and ailing emperor. Hirohito's father, the Emperor Taisho, contracted cerebral meningitis at three weeks of age, and he may never have fully recovered. He was said to suffer from poor health and mental illness for all of his life, and during his reign, which lasted from 1912 until his death in 1926, he was rarely seen in public. In 1921, Hirohito became Prince Regent, taking over for his failing father. Another major issue at the time was the Les Majestés, and I hope I got that right. It's, this is a French term that means, quote, to do wrong to majesty, end quote. Essentially, it's a crime against the reigning sovereign, but after Hirohito became regent, one could face this charge for simply saying something like, His majesty is only a cocky young kid. Reverence for the throne was undermined by the fact that the current emperor was ill, but also by an active pro-democracy movement that presented a strong argument for widespread suffrage. The government did open suffrage up slightly, but vetoed the idea of universal male suffrage, while at the same time attempting to protect the throne and undermine the pro-democracy movement. There was, in the years before Hirohito became emperor, what some referred to as, quote, a grave incident at court, which lends insight into what would become the standard political situation in Japan in the 1930s. The issue? Hirohito's engagement. Now, I know. It sounds odd to us that this was controversial, but it was, at least amongst the oligarchs who held a lot of power in the country. At issue was the question of colorblindness in the family of Hirohito's fiancé. There were also questions surrounding the education of the crown prince. What was going on is that one of the general, uh, Yamigata Aritomo, was unhappy with the choice of Princess Nagako to be the crown prince's future wife. It gets complicated, and I don't want to venture too far into the weeds here. But suffice it to say, Yamigata, the most powerful man in Japan at that time, second to the emperor himself, ended up losing the fight. He fell out of favor with the imperial family, as he was essentially trying to overturn not only Hirohito's wishes, but those of his mother, Empress Sadako. Keep in mind, Yamigata was not only a powerful man, but he had allies as well including the president of the strongest political party in Japan. This is important as it enabled those on the right to accuse the actual leaders of the country, not just uh, General Yamigata, of treason. This would be a tactic the Japanese right would use time and time again against their enemies. Simply call them traitors when they did not go along with whatever you wanted to do, and you could basically remove them from power. That's a dangerous tactic, and it's one I think a lot of countries you still see it being used today. Hey guys, are you enjoying this episode on history and economics? Are you looking to take your learning to the next level? Well, the next level of the American History Podcast can be found at Liberty Classroom. This site is awesome, and it's perfect for parents who have homeschool kids, or even adults who are simply lifelong learners. Go to the AmericanHistoryPodcast.com, click on the linked picture on the sidebar, and you'll be ready to join. You'll find courses on, of course, history, 
but also economics, Latin American history, literature, rhetoric, and more, all of which are taught by fantastic professors I know and trust, people like Tom Woods, graduate of both Harvard and Columbia, as well as others like Robert Murphy, Kevin Gutzman, Brian McClanahan, Jeffrey Herbner, and many other great scholars. Seriously, this is a fantastic site. If you're looking to finally learn the things they didn't teach in high school, but should have, unless I was your teacher, of course, this is the place for you. Again, be sure to enter the site via the link on our website, and we'll get a small finder's fee. It's a win-win for you and the show. Now back to the program. Now, as the great Ian Toll notes in his volume one of his Pacific War Trilogy, the rise of the right in Japan does not lend itself to an easy narrative. It doesn't fit in with the rise of fascism in Italy and in Germany. A charismatic leader rises to power on the back of a well-oiled political machine. Instead, in Japan, you had a right movement, or the right wing, that, at the best, was a decentralized confederation of shifting and secretive, like-minded nationalist groups that would quickly rise to prominence, only to just as quickly splinter or dissolve into nothingness. These groups, unsurprisingly, often were anti-capitalist, and many called for the return of all private property to the emperor. Some wanted to confront the West, and others wanted to do away with anything that smacked of democracy. If there was a center on which this movement was based, it was in the army. However, make no mistake, it drew from all walks of life, including academia, artists, writers, students, clergymen, politicians, naval officers, merchants, and even the aristocracy. So let's take a moment to discuss the fact that these, I don't know what we'd call them, proto-fascist right-wingers? Um, I want to discuss the idea that these fascists were whatever you want to call them, were capitalists. Um, they were not actually capitalists. Whether it was Mussolini in Italy or Hitler in Germany or these proto-fascists in Japan, they all did not like capitalism. Now, oftentimes you'll hear people, and it usually starts with academics, who argue that fascists and capitalists are basically the same thing. I think this is because they see things on a linear spectrum. And what I mean is that they see the left and the right spectrum as running in a line, and they see communists on the far left and capitalists on the far right. They also see fascists on the far right. Thus, they argue they are essentially the same thing. Uh, but this is incorrect. On the website, I've posted a graph of political ideology, which is quite different, and I would encourage you to check that out. Um, the reality is that leaders such as Hitler and Mussolini, and even Japanese authoritarians, despised capitalism. Hitler himself had numerous quotes where he said he was not beholden to the laws of economics. And because we don't have a lot of time to get off on this tangent, um, feel free to email me if you have questions and I can point you in the right direction as far as what to read on this. You can also check out a great video on this topic by Dr. Thomas E. Woods on YouTube. It's a talk that he gave in 2018 at Mises University, and I highly recommend you check that out. All right, generally speaking, the 1920s in Japan were a time when the political climate was tolerant but it was also a time of chaos and strife. One could argue that it was a time of parliamentary democracy when statesmen attempted to have a friendly relationship with the United States and England. Proof of this was their willingness to sign treaties that acted as a check on Japanese imperial ambitions in Asia. Tokyo was transforming into a city that could easily have been mistaken for Chicago, and the demand for all things Western was immense. Um, young men and women dressed in Western fashions, smoked Western cigarettes, 
Um, they listened to jazz. So it was kind of a very popular time, basically what you would think of as the 1920s. But there were troubling signs, if one knew where to look. Riots were common in both the city and the countryside, often caused by wages and food prices. You also had vote trading and the vulgar flaunting of wealth by new tycoons who had no issue with flaunting their wealth. All of this scandalized the average member of Japanese society, and in the end, the bohemian degeneracy of the 1920s led to the division of society into rival camps. On the one hand, you had those who advocated Japanism. Um, this advocated the traditional values of filial piety, Confucian harmony, and obligations between superiors and inferiors. This group did not believe that all men were created equal. Furthermore, they rejected the idea that political legitimacy came from the people, and they also argued against the idea that people have inalienable rights. Now, on the other hand, we get the idea of Kodo, also known as the Imperial Way. This was a vision of Japan as a family state, with the emperor as the father, god figure, dictator. The advocates of this ideology, and it was no less radical, advocated for the nation to be reborn by, quote, harnessing the power of Tenno against all the ills in society, defined variously as capitalist greed, the chaos of democratic politics, and the humiliations and abuses of foreign powers, end quote. Toll notes that many Japanese found something transcendent and sublime in the idea of subsuming themselves into the identity of the emperor. One Japanese ultranationalist wrote that the people would be absorbed into the larger self of the Tenno. If you're wondering what the Tenno was, it was this descendant of the sun goddess, and I'm going to mess this name up, I know, Amaterasu Omikami. Guess not too bad. Um, the emperor, in other words, was the literal descendant of the sun goddess, the Meiji Constitution of 1889 even said, quote, The Empire of Japan shall be reigned over and governed by a line of emperors unbroken for ages eternal. End quote. Because he was the son of a goddess, the emperor was the embodiment of everything that was good and sacred about the Japanese people, while at the same time containing none of their flaws. The emperor was a god. Now, the soon to be emperor, in my mind and in the minds of other historians, was not a likely candidate to be turned into a god-man. He was slight of frame, nearsighted, and spoke in a high-pitched voice. Raised in isolation, and as I've said, surrounded by military men, he was eager to please. That might have suited him well growing up, but it was not a trait that would suit him as the god-ruler of an empire. His education was controlled by two of the most renowned figures in Japan at the time, two heroes of the Russo-Japanese War, General Maresuke Nogi, and later, Admiral Achiro Togo. In my mind, there is already a problem here. Hirohito, eager to please, would be unlikely to push back against his mentors, who were also his heroes. Further, as we often see in history, military men tend to fight the last war all over again. What I mean by that is that while technology changes, Leaders, certainly at the start, followed the game plan that served them so well in the previous war. Take, for example, the United States and Vietnam. We tried to fight a Western-style war against a guerrilla army that simply refused to play by our rules. We tried all the tricks that had worked so well in World War II, but, much to our chagrin, nothing worked. What's more, as we've already seen, his eagerness to please those around him 
meant that as a young man, he adopted the liberal and moderate policies that were in vogue, so to speak. He traveled to Europe, where he was hosted by, amongst others, the Windsors. He traveled to France and saw firsthand the devastation wrought by the Great War. He took up golf. He was, in essence, exercising his freedom. But this all ended in 1923, when a would-be assassin took a shot at his vehicle as he was traveling through Tokyo. No harm was done to him, but this event, known as the Toranomon Incident, empowered the ultranationalist right wing, and it made the emperor a virtual prisoner in his palace as the court closed ranks around him. His desire to please meant he was unwilling or unable to push back against all of this. He was cut off from sources of information which might have helped him to oppose the reactionary impulses of the Japanese court and the military advisors who surrounded him. Then came 1926 and the death of his father. The enthronement ceremonies lasted an entire year, and they were comparable to a modern Olympic Games. There were major construction projects, banquets, religious ceremonies, and lantern processions, amongst other things. Prisoners were freed as a magnanimous gesture of the emperor himself. The people received gifts in the name of the emperor, and of course, all throughout the year, the Japanese were inundated with propaganda via radio and newspapers. By the time Hirohito donned the imperial regalia at the end of the year, the people had been indoctrinated into the cult of the god emperor like never before. Only modern technology allowed this, and again, to refer to the previous episode, this was typical of 20th century totalitarian regimes, used modern technology to manipulate the people. Then the crackdown on dissident voices began. It actually began in 1925 with the Peace Preservation Law of 1925. Liberals were put under surveillance by the Kempeitai, or the Thought Police. However, unlike, say, the Nazis or the Communists in the Soviet Union, the Kempeitai used a softer touch. While they were perfectly willing to imprison someone and torture them, they seemed more interested in curing and reforming um, the wrong-headed Japanese rather than simply punishing them. So, for example, in 1936, about 60,000 Japanese were arrested and charged with dangerous thoughts, but less than 5,000 were put on trial, and less than half of those were actually sentenced to prison. In the decades after the Meiji Restoration, Japan underwent an enormous amount of change and saw fantastic growth in the size and scope of its empire. Some compare it to the way Rome added territory in opportunistic fashion. This is an accurate depiction of the situation. First, it added the Kurile Islands north of Japan, then the Bonin Islands to the south. After that came the Ryukyu Islands, including Okinawa. Then there's the First Sino-Japanese War, and the Russo-Japanese War, all of which added both prestige and territory, including what we call Taiwan today and Korea, to Japan. Finally, after siding with the British Empire and her allies in the Great War, Japan gained several of Germany's Pacific colonies, including the Carolinas, the Carolines, sorry, the Marshalls, and the Marianas, except Guam. However, there was one issue which was just under the surface but would become important in the 1930s. Some nationalists in Japan believed that the United States and the British were in league against her. They had a long list of complaints against the Western powers that stretched decades into the past and essentially posited a great Western conspiracy to dominate Asia. They argued that the British and Americans had forced them to sign humiliating treaties that gave favorable trade concessions to the West. They also hated the idea of extraterritoriality, a policy which treated Americans and British on Japanese soil as if they were diplomats. In other words, they had diplomatic immunity, and if they committed a crime, 
that would be tried in their own they would be tried in their own courts in their own countries. Then there was the issue of the anti-Japanese legislation that had been passed in California. Nationalists in Japan pointed to this as an attempt to arouse the American public and get them to support a war against Japan. Add to this the treatment of Japan at the Versailles Conference, and you can kind of understand where they were coming from. Indeed, at Versailles, the Western powers had rejected a proposal calling for the idea of racial equality, which wasn't surprising. Let's face it, they, and I'm specifically referring to Britain and France, could not agree to such an idea. If they did, then their empires would be called into question. Perhaps the final straw, at least for the far right in Japan, was what happened in the United States in 1924. This was the passage of the Immigration Act of 1924. It not only restricted Japanese immigration into the United States, but worst of all, in the minds of the Japanese, is that it placed them into the same category as the Chinese and other so-called lesser nations. So this led the Japanese to view the United States as a rapacious, duplicitous, and malevolent nation that used every fiber of its strength to the subjugation and exploitation of all Asian nations while deceitfully spreading rhetoric of freedom, democracy, and self-determination. They pointed to the Monroe Doctrine as the main example of American hypocrisy. Remember, the United States claimed a sphere of influence throughout the entire Western Hemisphere, while insisting on an open door in China. This was, in the eyes of the Japanese, simply cover for what the Americans and their British cousins were really doing, exploiting China's riches while preventing others from doing the same thing. Now, if that wasn't enough, we have the Washington Naval Conference, held in 1921 through 1922. The purpose of this was to possibly avoid a war between Japan and Britain on the one hand, and the United States on the other. Remember, in the aftermath of World War I, many Americans preferred the old policy of non-intervention in European affairs. Secretary of State Charles Evans Hughes organized it, in the hopes of avoiding conflict in the Pacific. The treaty capped the battleship fleet of the three nations based on the ratio 5-5-3. The British and the Americans had more than the Japanese, but this was because, as they argued, they had commitments in other areas of the world, especially the Atlantic, and in the case of Britain, Indian Ocean. The Japanese, on the other hand, had no such commitments. Now, what was behind his thinking was the desire of many, if not all nations, to avoid another naval arms race like what had taken place prior to World War I between Germany and Britain. Another problem, at least from the American point of view, was the fact that a long-standing treaty between Japan and Britain called for the British to support the Japanese in the event of war with the United States. I don't want to get too far into this just yet, but in the end, the result was that it left a vacuum in the Pacific region, one which was filled by the Japanese. This is because, for all intents and purposes, the British Royal Navy was cut in size and exited the area, and the American Navy was also reduced. Thus, who was going to fill the vacuum? If you guess Japan, you get the prize. Now, believe it or not, the future emperor, his court and advisors, the admirals who ran the Japanese navy, they all agreed that the treaty was a good thing, at least at that time. They saw it as a means of restraining the shipbuilding and industrial power of both Britain and the United States. Further, the naval establishment figured they could use better recruiting and training to beef up their forces. And they even thought the areas not mentioned in the treaty, such as carrier aviation and submarine warfare, were ripe for exploitation. And, in the end, Japan would be spared the expense of a naval arms race at a time when her, her industrial economy was fragile. 
Now, as you can imagine, the far right in Japan did not view this treaty in a positive light. Resentment grew against parliamentary government, which put an emphasis on economic issues and on cutting the defense budget, which, according to these folks, weakened Japan's ability to protect itself and its interests. And speaking of economics, the economics of the treaty were awful, at least from a certain point of view. First, it cut 1,700 commissioned officers, 5,800 petty officers, and 9 out of 10 admirals from the fleet. It cut the incoming class at the Japanese Naval Academy by 80% and turned what had once been a promising career path into a dead end. It damaged the shipbuilding industry, which, in effect, hurt workers. I should mention the fact that the shipbuilding industry in Japan at this time was one of its largest and most advanced industries. You can imagine how this handed a prime opportunity to the right to attack the left and parliamentary government. However, the treaty that truly broke the camel's back, so to speak, was the London Naval Treaty. Signed on April 22, 1930, at the Court of St. James, this treaty extended the 553 ratio established in Washington and attempted to fix the loophole that we noted earlier. However, this time the Japanese right and military establishment were prepared to fight. Admiral Kanji argued that it was as if the Japanese, I mean the Americans and British, had put the Japanese in jail. To make matters worse, a cadre of academics, journalists, and military officers who were part of the nationalist right used the power of the pen and radio to rail against the hated formula as a policy designed to keep Japan down. Now one could argue, as Ian Toll does, that since the arrival of Commodore Perry in 1853, Japan was on a quest for respect, especially from the Americans and British. The Japanese, more than most, saw treaties as not just tools of foreign policy, but as measurements of their worth. Thus, being held to 60% of the American and Royal Navy meant, in their eyes, Japan was only worth 60%. Needless to say, this did not go down well. Now, in October of 1930, the Emperor's Privy Council ratified the treaty. However, for the left in Japan, this was an empty win, a Pyrrhic victory, so to speak. The day marks the turning point in history of Japan. It ended up unleashing forces that would not be overcome until 1945. Critics of the treaty charged their opponents with having fallen under the sway of the West, or even worse, having been bought by the Japanese, I mean by the Americans and British. In other words, they accused them of treason. Admiral Togo, the hero of the Russo-Japanese War, declared it would irreparably harm Japan. And both the Army and the Navy felt the civilian leadership had overstepped their bounds and trespassed onto territory that rightfully belonged to the military. Now, as we will see in the next episode, conflict between Japan and China breaks out in Manchuria in 1931. But rumors of a coming conflict over that territory date all the way back to 1927. This was also the time of a financial panic, and both of these issues worsened over the next few years, certainly aided by the financial meltdown in the United States starting in 1929. There was also rising anger towards capitalism in Japan at the time, which undoubtedly led to distrust of the Americans and the British who were associated with capitalism. To make matters worse, Admiral Kato Kanji, the main opponent of the Washington Naval Treaty, started pressuring the emperor to enlarge the sphere of national defense. He argued the safety of the empire meant that Jap the Japanese would have to confront the Americans in the Western Pacific. This is where we can see Hirohito's hesitancy or his ability to move back and forth on issues. Kato delivered this argument in a report dated November 27, 1929, and it was approved by Hirohito. However, 
he clung to the arguments of Kato's opponents, known as the Treaty Faction. Both groups wanted a big navy and believed in the Mahanian Big Battle Doctrine. This was proposed by Albert Thayer Mahan, and I've discussed it in at Season 3, but quickly it was the idea that great nations had big fleets of battleships, and the way you win a war is to engage in a decisive naval battle. The difference between the Kato admirals and the treaty admirals is that the latter believed the difference in power between Japan and the United States ruled out anything but a passive defense of imperial territory, at least at that point. Now There were signs, however, that attitudes were changing towards the more militant in Japanese society. After the left won several seats in the national elections held in February 1928, the government of Prime Minister Tanaka carried out mass arrests, rounding up almost 1,500 Communist Party members and activists. Later that spring, there were expulsions of Marxist professors from universities, and on June 29th, the Tanaka government suspended constitutional processes. This, to the far left, meant they had to define the emperor as an oppressor. As if that wasn't enough, in June, officers of the Kwantung Army, who were guarding the South Manchurian Railway Zone, murdered a local warlord, one Chang Solin. Uh, this incident was, at the time, covered up by the army, an action which Hirohito condoned in 1930, and which then led to further acts of aggression by the army. Lastly, the groundwork was laid during this time for the committing of war crimes by the Japanese. In 1928, the Japanese government refused to endorse an international treaty banning the use of chemical and biological weapons. Then in 1929, thanks to pressure from the military, it did not endorse the Geneva Prisoner of War Convention. The army and navy both argued the clause of the treatment of the POWs was too lenient and could not be enforced by the emperor's soldiers um, who would never allow themselves to be taken alive and turned into POWs. Later, the Japanese would question the validity of international legal conventions concerning the treatment of prisoners and the treatment of wounded based on this. Okay, so this is where we end the story for today. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to the episodes um, a week early, and they're commercial-free. You also get access to the bonus show, 1983, the year the world almost ended. For $10 a month, you'll get access to all that, plus an additional bonus show, Quagmire in the Middle East, which discusses the U.S.'s involvement in the Middle East. Now, if Patreon isn't your deal, you can support the show by visiting our sponsors, such as Fable Beard Company, the official beard oil of the American History Podcast. We also have a Buy Me a Coffee setup. Just message me for the information. Speaking of which, I love email. Send it my way at sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can also join our email list by visiting our website at www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. Until next time, I am Sean, and you've been listening to Season 4 of the American History Podcast. I'll see you next time. Shut that thing off. Instead of wandering, who was Shut it off, Ralph Ray. Oh, please, wait till I get it. Wait a minute.